Um, my wife's name is Siri, and we have seven kids, and we're all here today, and we're glad to be here. We really enjoy our time here. And Blake um, has been a really good friend to me and a good mentor, and Aaron, and um, the relationships we've been developing with you guys. So I'm really thankful for your presence in our life. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 18 today. If you'd open your Bibles to Matthew 18. Matthew's the first book in the New Testament. We're going to read verses 1 through 6. Matthew 18, verses 1 through 6. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little child to him and placed the child among them. And he said, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it'd be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. We'll pray again, and um, even though we just came out of prayer, one of the reasons we'll pray again is because um, we're acknowledging that God is alive and that we're engaging him at all these points in the in the service, like we would if we were having a meal with someone. Um, we don't just ask them their opinion at the beginning of the meal. We're acknowledging that God's with us the whole time, and specifically we're asking him right now to actually open our hearts up to his word and that his spirit would feed us with real bread. Um, as we look at the word. Father, thank you for this opportunity to be together. Thank you for this fellowship of believers. Thank you for this town and I ask that you would bless it. I ask that you would unify the believers in Southwest Harbor with love. I ask that you would bring a genuine and lasting revival by your spirit to the state of Maine and to Southwest Harbor. I pray that you would quicken us to love the gospel more, to be passionate, to have hearts that desire to see Jesus lifted up, that we would wake up in the morning with the word of God on our lips and in our coming in and going out and in our laying down, that we would have singularity in our purpose. And I ask that you would feed us with bread from heaven and by your word and the illumination of your spirit, Acknowledging this is special, what's happening right now, that you are dwelling in each member individually, but when we gather together, you are also in our midst. And we thank you for this blessing that you've told us is here amongst your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, Matthew, there's an emphasis in the gospel account of Matthew, and that's on the kingdom. And so what happens is Matthew's going to keep coming back to key concepts like kings and kingdoms to show the regality and the strangeness and peculiarity of the kingdom of God and who King Jesus is. Because there's um, a world of empires 
in the day in which Matthew's writing, and the empires of the world function all the same way throughout the world's history. And so when Jesus comes in and he's talking about kingdoms, they're going to hear empire, they're going to hear gold, they're going to hear stretch limos, they're going to hear certain things that exist and are related to the concept of kingdoms. And it's like in John 17 when Jesus uses the term eternal life. And everybody in Israel knows what eternal life means. It means what you get when you die, if you believe in the resurrection and you keep living forever. And Jesus qualifies it and he says, well, no, when I say eternal life, I mean knowing me. And he's rebranded the word or the phrase so that now actually we have to kind of pause for a minute. And when we hear Jesus saying in in eternal life, we go, oh, oh, eternal life. He means knowing him. And that forces us to recognize we're dealing in an entirely different category. He does the same thing with kingdom. So Jesus is doing this with kingdoms. So this is today's passage is another example of this. When you hear kingdom your mind already starts producing images. And Jesus says in our passage, no, 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 wait. When I say kingdom, I mean this. And then he forces us to think, oh, okay, when he says kingdom, he means insignificance. He means people whose names I don't remember. He means somebody I wouldn't bother to give the time of day to. The king is a man of no reputation. That's totally counterintuitive. That's his kingdom. And he's trying to get us to stop like disciples and recognize, I'm saying something different and you're acting like I've said Rome. You keep thinking when I say the church, when I say the the reign of God going out into the world, you keep hearing American prosperity. You keep hearing capitalism. Listen for a second to what I'm saying. Maybe those things aren't bad. But recognize that what he's saying is a different kind of a thing. Someone asked J.I. Packer years ago, who's the greatest living preacher today? And Packer says, you've never heard of him. And the point isn't that Packer had someone in mind, but he didn't want to disclose his name. The point was, wrong game. That's not how God works, right? That, that may be how Hollywood works, or the Academy, or the Oscars. That, that may be how many people work. Maybe how the whole world works. But don't do that with people who preach the word. Don't do that with people in the kingdom. His kingdom is an upside-down triangle. It doesn't work the way other kingdoms work. The way the world works is that if someone's great, if someone's the greatest at something, then we'll hear about them. The cream will inevitably rise to the top. What were the names of the 12 disciples? Right? We know them. We know their names. I was taught the song to memorize them when we were a kid, right? Simon, Peter, Andrew, James' brother, John, Philip, Thomas, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon, Judas, and Bartholomew. What, what was the name of the little kid that Jesus places in the center of the circle of the disciples and says, none of you are getting in unless you all become like him or her. 
We don't know. That's the point. We don't know that child's name on purpose. That's our lesson. We'd think if we were worldly, if this kid were important, he would have made a name for himself. If he were actually that important, we'd still be reading his books. But the point wasn't the person at all. The point was the absence of the person which was culturally symbolized by any and every child. It didn't matter what their name was. They were a kid. They were of no consequence, without reputation, nameless. Jesus is saying that you can't even get in to his kingdom unless you're willing to turn from empire, from Hollywood, and that mindset of success and of things worth pursuing, you have to turn from it towards a model in which what's valued and esteemed gets you nothing. Gets you not even remembered. No one listens when you talk. Your opinion doesn't matter. Why so drastic a demand? I thought we could just kind of get in if we believed. And you can. But to believe in this king means you specifically disbelieve in the other kings, including your own kingdom in which you're the king. You have to repudiate it and turn from it and say, I'm giving up this kingdom so I can have access to that one. And we think the rich young ruler is not most of our situation in which he has to go, go away sorrowful because he had much that he would have to give up because we can look at our bank account and say like, well, if, if he asked me to do that, there really wouldn't be that much. We don't have a lot. You have everything in the way you think. You are the king of your world. You walk into a room and the narrative begins. That self-centeredness, the selfish ambition, you're king of your world. And you have to repudiate it if you want to be allowed to be in his kingdom. It's impossible unless you become like a little nameless child who does Exactly what he or she is told to do because they are under authority. Verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? What a question, right? To ask the king of kings. Who's the most important person in your kingdom? And we're supposed to laugh at what's insinuated, right? Of course, of course, they don't mean God. They mean second to God. Which is a familiar plot, actually. We've heard that one before, right? Someone who thinks they're just as good as God, maybe. Or, or a close-running second. 
And that happens for us. We can acknowledge that God's first place until we really do get to be second place. And then we're really one degree from where we think we ought to be. And that's what we inherited from our parents and which they believed upon from the first rebel. Listen to the description of the fall of Lucifer, Isaiah fourteen thirteen. You said in your heart, I will ascend to the heavens. I'll raise my throne above the stars of God. I'll sit enthroned on the mount of assembly, on the utmost heights of Mount Zaphon. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you're brought down to the realm of the dead and to the depths of the pit. The disciples in today's passage are concerned about who's going to be seen, considered as the greatest in the kingdom, second to God. What is that if that's not idolatry? It is idolatry. It's unbelief in the king according to his terms. Absolute aloneness in who deserves the glory. It's impossible to come into the kingdom as an unbeliever. And belief in him means repudiation of all others. What Jesus specifically draws attention to in this child is the humility. The no reputation being no one of consequence. You wouldn't write down what they said. If they had an idea, you wouldn't mind if you were thinking about someone, something else when they were talking. It's a kid. The acceptance of not being anybody important. And this idea is actually at the center of every person in this room because we live in a culture that idolizes the self, literally, deifies the self. The greatest worth is placed on the self, which is worship, ascribing worth. The self, our culture catechizes its children in self-centeredness. But if you've entered the kingdom of heaven, if you confess Christ as King, as Lord, you're saying, not in my house, that's what you're saying. We don't do that. We don't catechize our children in self-centeredness. We don't live according to the maxim that I exist for this purpose to the pers- for the pursuit of my own happiness. Not in my home. If you've entered the kingdom, you've renounced that. That's your confession. You've said, my life is not my own. It was bought with a price and belongs to someone else. Therefore, I eat what I'm told to at dinner. I'm a child. I do what I'm told. 
I don't buck and kick and rebel when God, my father, gives me something. Why? Because he's my father. I'm a child. He's a good dad. I do what he tells me. Jesus lived that way. God obeyed the father. God himself set a pattern, not only so that we'd know how to walk, but because it's right and true, that the Father was to be trusted, even when our own will decided rebellion made most sense. That is true of you, right? If you claim to be a Christian. I'm reading a book right now on the theology of John Newton, and the woman who wrote it, starts off the book with this story. She says she was sitting and listening to this woman give her testimony. And the longer the woman's testimony went on, the more agitated she became. And the more frustrated and antsy and impatient she became because this woman sitting in the pew had been crucial in the speakers coming to the Lord. And she just sat there waiting for the plot of the story to be admitted, which was, this is about me. This is a story about me. And she hasn't even gotten to the punchline yet. The climax of the story is me. I'm the protagonist. And she says, she realizes she's accusing the woman, giving this all the glory for her salvation to Jesus. In her heart, she's sitting in the pew going, you liar. You liar. You didn't mention me at all. And I was at the center of that story. This is church. Jesus gathers the disciples around and he says, Not in my kingdom. You can act that way in Hollywood, you can act that way on Wall Street. But you said you left that behind. Selfish ambition, glory hound. We need to be careful not to think that this self-centeredness died with the apostles. They didn't learn the lesson at this moment, thankfully, and then passed it on to the next 2,000 years. We're prone to wanting to be quoted or mentioned or thanked for all that God has done through us. Jesus isn't suggesting here that children are innocent or that they don't have a sinful nature. He's pointing to the fact that when they talk, They expect that people may not listen. They might be hurt, but they know their place. Being children, they've never functioned in full, unfettered autonomy. This is part of the illusion that adults are bequeathed, that we are autonomous. It borders heretically on aseity, 
Aseity is self-existence. Only God has aseity. But adults are under the illusion of our autonomy, so much so that we border on heresy when we start to think, I'm really king of my world. See, not if you're a Christian. What makes it heretical is you're defying your confession. You've said by saying, Christ is Lord of me, that you are a child. And when children say, I do what I want, this is my life, this is my body, you deny your confession. And Jesus is preaching, preaching this to us. The more adult we become, the more we demand our rights. Children, by nature of their position, are dependent upon the grace of those over them. If I order a meal at a restaurant and I don't receive what I've ordered, I have a right to send it back. I can do that. I can refuse to pay for it. I'm somebody. I've got money. I'm there. They're doing something for me. They work for me. This is my money making that clatter in the kitchen. Right? And I can send it back. But I train my kids at every single meal that whatever is put in front of them, they say thank you. And if they don't like it, they keep their mouth shut. Every meal. You eat that because that's what your mom made. Or that's what I made. And you don't run this kitchen. It's not your money calling the orders. You're a child. This is the lesson. You say thank you, right? You say thank you. No, we don't do this in this house. You say thank you over and over and over every single meal it is rebelled against. Ah, I don't like it. (laughs) <laughs> That's right. maybe not every meal no no plenty, plenty of home runs all the time right we we struggle with knowing what the will of God is for our life and I think it's in 1 Thessalonians Paul says This is the will of God for your life. Don't complain. But every single thing that happens to you in your life, say thank you. Every single thing that happens to you, say thank you. This is God's will for your life. Don't complain. Stop complaining. But everything you're given, say thank you. We know James picks this up. This is not an isolated passage. It's not a proof text. This is the will of God for your life. Children, stop complaining and say thank you every single time. This is the will of God for your life. See, the the concept of being a child keeps emerging. It keeps coming coming to the fore. This is true, right, in his kingdom. In a kingdom where your life is not your own, it was paid for, and you agreed to that. Because you thought that was better for you if you confess Christ. And this is a kingdom in which the king may at any juncture see fit to allow you to get sick, 
or lose a loved one or be mocked in front of a crowd. Thank you. See how otherworldly this is. This is a, a, this is a different world. See, we keep rolling with this idea of kingdom, and all the while we haven't remembered he, he actually is redefined the terms. Eternal life is knowing me. You know that, right? And we say, yeah, I want it. Verse 2. He called a little child to him and placed the child among them. And he said, truly I tell you, unless you change... And become like little children. You'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child. Whoever humbles himself. Whoever humbles herself. Whoever changes. And takes the back seat. And says... Not me, not me, not me. Not in false modesty, in genuineness. Is the greatest in the kingdom. Solomon, who is first or second of the greatest kings of planet earth. Certainly the wisest. When he began his reign... He described himself in this manner, 1 Kings 3, 7. And now, O Lord my God, this is him basically dedicating, dedicating uh, his reign to the Lord. This is his prayer. And now, O Lord my God, you've made your servant king in place of David, my father. Although I'm but a little child, And I don't know how to go out or come in. You made me a leader. And I don't even know how to follow. I don't know how to do anything. And God says, that's right. That's right. In one of Douglas Adams' books, uh, it's been a while, but he's got a guy who's going to become like president of the universe or something. And he has to be put into an insignificancy factor machine before he's fit for leadership. And the insignificancy factor machine, like, he gets in the box and all of a sudden he astral projects and he starts looking down at himself, like, on top of the box and he keeps panning out and it goes outside his galaxy and outside the systems and outside of everything until inevitably there's nothing and he realizes he's a part of this speck that gets lost in specks that gets lost in nothing and gets lost in darkness and significancy. And that's hell. You're saved from that. But you are that small. And Jesus is saying, I'm putting value on you. I'm not going to leave you in the darkness. You're not a speck amongst nothingness. I've got a name for you. And I'm going to hold on to you. But just remember who you are. And who I am. See, because we go in these, these fits of bipolarity where we're self-deprecating and we're saying we're, we're less than that, we're nothing, we're in the darkness, we're empty, we're nothing, we're hell, we're existentialists. 
And, and there's nothing. And God says, but I put value on you. And I'm something. And the next thing we know, we're, we're scrambling to kick him out of his chair. Jesus is correcting those extremes. Solomon's attitude is pleasing to the Lord because it acknowledges that which is essential for life in the Lord. Faith, trust, belief, those are all the same word. Dependency on the living God. God being our only hope and literally hell and despair being our only option outside of Him. There's no other Savior and I mean me. I'm no Savior of myself. Jesus is the only Savior. I need Thee every hour. I need Thee. Every hour. Concerning this, Eugene Peterson said, Our Lord gave us this picture of the child as a model for Christian faith. Not because of the child's helplessness, but because of the child's willingness to be led, to be taught, and to be blessed. Verse 5. Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. Jesus takes this person of no reputation and he equates him or her with himself. It's true. Our king was born to an unwed pregnant teen in someone's garage. No no reputation. No one to bother with. Wouldn't stand out in a crowd. Really, nobody head and shoulders above others if you were to just look at him. Whoever receives someone like this, someone insignificant in his name, receives Jesus, and this is not hyperbole. You'll stand in front of Jesus if you're a real believer, and he'll say, I wanted to thank you for that time you sat with me and you listened to me prattle on and on about things you didn't care about. And we'll say, when did I do that, Jesus? And he'll say, remember so-and-so? And you'll say, no. Because that's what kind of person he's talking about. And he'll jog your memory. Remember that time? Remember when you, and, and it'll dawn on you and you'll go. Because that's the lesson. And he wants you to take all your wasted minutes, all the insignificant minutes, the, the stuff that feels like there's a plot here. I'm on my way to somewhere. We're going to a conference or I got to preach this morning or, you know, we're doing something, Right. We're on our way to do something for God. And and this guy at the gas station interrupts. That's all our great Jesus moments, our interruptions. I'm on my way to raise a guy's dead daughter. Let's stop for a little bit, actually. 
and let's address this lady. Lord, my daughter, wait. Where, where is all the importance in this invisible kingdom? Here's the lesson. It's in the cracks. It's in between the letters. It's in all these moments that even disciples are willing to flush the short-term memory on. That doesn't matter. We're on our way to a missions conference. That doesn't matter. I, I don't even know who they are. I don't know if they're making the right decisions in life. Thank you for sitting with me. And we will be blown away. Why didn't we believe him the first time? Why were we... Why didn't we just listen to what he was saying and take it as actually being what he, what he was saying as being true? Because we live in a world of a visible reality that is in rebellion to it and the visible reality is so believable and it's everywhere. Verse 6. If anyone causes one of these little ones these insignificant people who believe in me to stumble, it'd be better for that person if somebody had put a bullet in their head in the parking lot before they got out of their car. That's not what he said. Yeah, it is. You've got to listen to the linguistic violence that Jesus is invoking here. He's making people say, Jesus, don't. This is church. This is supposed to be G, PG. Right? Don't talk that way. Jesus, please. No one's going to kill you. You're the Savior. Get out of my face, Lucifer. Who is this guy? And what is his problem It's that the kingdom that he's bringing is so different from everything we think it is that he has to shake us a little bit and say, are you even listening to me? This is really important. It's not possible to overemphasize the warning here. Paul uses this kind of language about people who want to tamper with the gospel and add to it works of righteousness as being essential for justification. You've heard his language. He's violent. I hope bad things happen to them during the procedure if they're telling you that. Huh? It'd be better for somebody like this if if somebody had tied something really heavy around their neck and then thrown them over the side of the bridge. Jesus, please, Apparently, God takes this that seriously. What so seriously? People that you don't think about at all because they're insignificant because you're living in Hollywood and you're living in America and you live on Wall Street and you're thinking what matters is consequential things that are decisive and will know it because they're forces to be reckoned with. And Jesus says, yeah, in Babylon... 
not going to last. I'm not the king of Babylon. True believers of all ages have recognized this willingness to be led as the heart that God desires. They've prayed for it. They've seen the wickedness of their own flesh and said, Oh God, please, please put that heart in me. Psalm 51.10 Create in me a pure heart. Oh God, please renew a steadfast spirit in me. Don't cast me away from your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit. And God, when you make me new, when you do this change in me that I need, make me somebody who's submissive. Make me somebody who eats what you put in front of me and says, thank you. I need that. Why? Because I'm a leader in Israel. And I know my flesh and it's rebellious and it wants to be king of the world. Please put a different kind of spirit in me. Please. One that says whatever you want. Whatever you want. Paul says the same thing. David says it. Follow my example. I'm a good leader. Why? Because I'm a good follower. Follow my example. Why? Because I, I have no idea where we're going. I don't know how to come in and I don't, I don't know how to go out. I don't know how to do anything. I'm just watching him. I'll do whatever he says because I'm a child. I don't think I'm an adult in the restaurant. I'm a kid. I eat who it's in front of me. You have to do this if you want to be in the kingdom. Watch what I do. Thank you, Dad. Thank you, Dad. Thank you, Dad. This is good, Mom. And Paul sees that in believers, like in Thessalonica, and he goes, you guys... I heard that the cops came in and actually took all your furniture out of your house and your flat screens and he actually put you guys in jail and you guys said thank you. I was psyched. I was like, I told everybody about it. You guys, this is so beautiful. You guys are like a bunch of stupid kids. It's so perfect. It is so perfect. You did it. You did it. And... And the rebel, the American revolution, revolutionary in me, says, he's, clearly he's not asking us to extremism. He's not going to ask us to be extreme like that, right? Francis Schaeffer says, here's the great injustice the church does to our children. We train them, we catechize them to to become conservatives when we should be training them to be revolutionaries. That's the great damage we've done to the youth culture in the church. Settling for conservatives when we should have been training them to be revolutionaries. God will fellowship with his people in closing. But unbelief in God as he's declared himself keeps you out of the kingdom. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says, the gospel is effective for salvation if it's the one I preached to you. On his terms, you're welcome in. But you can't get in unless you're willing to 
turn and change and repudiate all the selfish ambition that every kid show on PBS and, and all of your friends and all the great books that we read as kids inculcate in us and shape us into being I am the most important thing in the world and I can do whatever I want and I say and the world is mine you can't come in unless you're willing to turn from that the human heart apart from regeneration gets goosebumps And gives standing ovations to works like Invictus by William Ernest Henley. This is a poem. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance I've not winced nor cried aloud under the bludgeonings of chance my head is bloody but unbowed beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade and yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid it matters not how straight the gate How charged with punishments the scroll. I'm the master of my fate. I'm the captain of my soul. If that sort of eloquence thrills you, your only option is to repent. It's rebellion of the highest order. What I'm saying is only offensive to the unbent knee. To someone, to someone who still believes. He's not asking that. No way. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I'm the master of my fate. I'm the captain of my soul. Know that the Lord will say to those people, Thy will be done. Bloody head unbowed. Thou hast said it. But as for the Lord, the King, the only King who will survive the ages... He will dwell with his people. The God, the King, who is of the highest order. This is what he says about himself in Isaiah 57. For this is what the high and exalted one says over every empire over anything that could be named or created. This is what the high and exalted one says, he who lives forever, he whose name is holy. I live in a high and holy place, but also with the contrite, 
with the one who's lowly in spirit in order to revive the spirit of lowly ones and to revive the heart of the contrite the heartbroken the insignificant the lowest I live so high you can't even think about touching me but I also dwell where no one dares to tread because you think it would be a waste of time I live there as well let's pray thank you father for your word thank you for bothering with us thank you for saving us for placing value on us for loving us thank you for making humanity in your image what a beautiful picture how valuable put us in our right place Lord dwelling with the most high and the lowly in Jesus name Amen